ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. If you don't like the sex you're having, of course you don't want it. That is not a dysfunction. That's normal. If you're going to measure sexual well-being, whether or not you're doing it right, it's the pleasure that you're sharing and everything else is peripheral. So if I had one universal piece of advice for how to improve an erotic connection that you would like to last a long time, both people give, but especially the guys. Ladies, we need to talk. It's been running for seven seasons. And in that time, a lot of people have contacted us to say that they're in a long-term relationship and the sex is rubbish. And please help. They've said something like, I love him, but I'm not in love with him. That the intimacy is dead. The spark has been doused. That it's all okay, but not okay. (laughs) The question we keep hearing is... How do you maintain the spark, the fire and the connection when we're intimate, not with their souls as much as with the smell of our partner's farts, with their toenail clippings, when we've heard every boring anecdote and dad joke, not just three times, but maybe 3,000 times. Dr Emily Nagoski is a psychologist with a PhD in human sexual behaviour. She's a sexual health educator and an author. Her first book, Come As You Are, examines the science behind female sexuality and pleasure. Emily is a bona fide sex nerd, and on today's episode, she's going to help us solve the dilemma of how to keep those fires burning. Ladies... We need to talk about sex in a long-term relationship with Dr. Emily Nagoski. Emily is currently balls deep in writing a new book on how to have great sex and how to keep having great sex in long-term relationships. It's called Come Together which is a great title. And I asked Emily Nagoski what made her decide to write this book. Writing Come As You Are, uh, it was it was difficult. I was spending hours every day reading, thinking, writing about sex. And it was so stressful that I had zero interest in actually having any sex. And then the book was published and I went on book tour and... I would try to follow my own advice. My advice is, you know, put your body in the bed, let your skin touch your partner's skin, and your body will go, oh, right, I really like this person. I really like this. What a good idea that is. But I uh, would put my body in the bed and let my skin touch my partner's skin, and I would just cry with exhaustion and fall asleep. And being the nerd that I am, I went to the peer-reviewed research and was like, but actually, what fixes this? Actually, even though I knew a whole bunch of the science and what I discovered really was contradictory, certainly to everything in the mainstream, but also contradictory to a lot of what the science assumed about couples in long term relationships. Okay, first up, before we burden you with more mental load that you have to try and take on to fix things, remember that keeping a sexual spark is a two-person game. 
So you need for you and your partner to be both engaged and reasonable, okay? And this might be one of those ladies we need to talk episodes that you politely forward on to your partner to listen to with a little bit of a sexy nudge, nudge, baby. Dr. Emily says that in order to improve the sex in our relationship, it can be handy to look at what makes other couples sexually successful. There are three characteristics of couples who sustain a strong sexual connection in the long term. The first one's, I hope, really obvious and easy. You have a good relationship. You're friends. You admire and trust each other. You're there for each other. You can turn toward each other's difficult feelings with kindness and compassion. The second one is that these are couples who prioritize sex. They decide that it matters for some reason, that they stop doing all the other things that they could be doing and just do this wacky, silly, fun thing that we humans do. We're, you know, busy. We've got family members to take care of and other friends to spend time with and school to go to and paychecks to earn and dogs to house train. Why? In the midst of all that, would we stop doing those things and just like close the door and rub our naked skins together and lick each other's genitals? Why? There must be something really important about it. The couples who sustain the connection are not the ones who never lose sight of each other. The couples who sustain a sexual connection are the ones who find their way back to each other because it matters. And then the third characteristic turns out to be the difficult one. And that is that they set aside everything they have ever been taught about who they're supposed to be as sexual people and what a long-term sexual relationship is supposed to look like. And instead, they embrace their own internal experience and they embrace their partner's experience and they co-create a context that makes it easy for their brains to access pleasure. Is a relationship at risk if you haven't had sex after like a certain period of time? If you make that decision, the predictor of sexual and relationship satisfaction is not frequency of sex or duration of sex or where you do it or what positions or whether your relationship is open or closed. It's whether or not you like the sex you are having. Okay. Like it's normal not to want sex you do not like. If you say to your partner, I would really like us to have a sexual connection that's satisfying for both of us, I'm interested in working on exploring what gives us both pleasure, and they say no, Mm. and it really matters to you, then that can be a deal breaker. Now, I know that you love the science behind sex and and your research. How (laughs) How often do couples have sex according to your scientific research? You want to know what's normal. I think. Imagine if a couple is having sex on average once a day. Sometimes it's twice a day. Sometimes it's not for a couple of days. And at least one of the partners doesn't enjoy most of it. Is that normal? When I say that what matters is whether or not you like the sex you are having, I truly mean that the thing that matters, the measure of, I mean, if you're going to measure sexual well-being, whether or not you're doing it right, it's the pleasure that you're sharing and everything else is peripheral. If we put pleasure at the center of our definition of sexual well-being, all the other pieces will fall into place. There's this wonderful sex therapist and researcher named Peggy Kleinplatz. She had long conversations with these people who self-identify as having extraordinary sex lives, 
profound, life-changing, healing experiences of erotic connection with people. And frequency of sex was not part of what they considered extraordinary sex. So how do we freshen up stale sex and get creative about how we're getting pleasure? Yeah, Peggy Kleinplatz, the researcher I mentioned, said there's nothing worse than doing what works relentlessly. (laughs) Like you figure out the thing that gets you both to orgasm, you do that thing, you both have your orgasms, and you're like, this is fine. We're, that's fine. I worry about the word creativity because so much mainstream sex advice, especially in like magazines and stuff, is about like experimentation and try handcuffs, try role play, try mm. watching porn together. And all those things are great if you want to do it. You do you. Go ahead. And it turns out when couples have extraordinary sex, they don't really talk about that stuff. They talk about erotic intimacy. So instead of creativity and, you know, role play, open your eyes and keep the lights on. Talk about risk and intimacy. What do you think of when you think of like, if I wanted to have like the perfect sex life, what would it be? I don't know. You want it to be, you want to be covered in sweat afterwards. You want fireworks as orgasms. Um, And I guess you you kind of want to be clenched onto that person at the end. Okay, well, that's the end. How did you get there? (laughs) I don't know. I have no idea. (laughs) It's the Hollywood version. That's that's exactly the thing is I don't know. And people don't know how to – I want this experience. I want to feel like wrapped up together with my person. I want to have fireworks kinds of orgasms, and you can absolutely have that. Chances are that what it takes to make that are not the things that you have been taught you are supposed to do. Can I get nerdy now? Yes, please. So let's imagine two couples and they, the first couple is in like very serious distress. So they go to Peggy, the sex therapist, and one partner says, you know what? I know this might hurt my partner's feelings, but if we never had sex again, I'd be totally fine with that. And Peggy would say, okay, tell me more about this sex you do not want. Chances are the sex they describe will be, as Peggy puts it, dismal and disappointing. Mm. And this is where we started, right? If you don't like the sex you're having, of course you don't want it. That is not a dysfunction. That's normal. So what she'll then say is, you know, I rather like sex, but if that's the sex I were having, I would not want it either. So what kind of sex is worth wanting is her question to the person who would be satisfied if they never had sex again. Is there any kind of sex that could be worth wanting, whether it's just sex you can imagine or sex maybe you've had in the past? That's a really essential question. And then the couple has to decide what they're willing to do to create that sex worth wanting. But let's take a couple that's in sort of less distress. So they come to a sex educator, say they come to a weekend workshop and find me at lunch and they, they've read Come As You Are. They've really been trying to work on these issues and they have a baby who's almost a toddler, you know, that kind of age. The wife in this heterosexual cisgender couple has been struggling with desire ever since she got pregnant. So it's been a while. And he, more than anything, really wants her to want him spontaneously and frequently and powerfully. 
And if your partner said to you over and over for about a year and a half, the thing I want most from you is for you to want me passionately and frequently while you're pregnant and then postnatal and breastfeeding, how's that going to make you feel? (laughs) Not amazing, right? So this couple seems like they're in less distress because the partner with lower desire wants to want sex. And they know that if they get there, they do like the sex that they have. It's pleasurable. It is sex worth wanting. And they just can't because they're stuck someplace. So how do they get unstuck? So the deal is, there's this researcher, his name was Jak Panksepp. He was known popularly as the rat tickler. But he developed this model of seven primary process emotions. These are the core emotions that are universal to all mammals. So lust is one of them. Absolutely. A core primary process emotion. Uh, Play is another primary process emotion shared among all mammals. That's why when Yak Panksep would tickle the rats uh, and he would take away his hand, they would chase after his hand to come and get more tickles. That's play. Word play is play. Chanting, singing, and dancing are play. Sports, games are play. Play is the social emotion. It is the foundational emotion of friendship. And remember how I said that people in great sexual relationships have a great relationship. They're really good friends. Yeah. They spend time playing together in that primary process state. But other primary process emotions are fear, which we all recognize. And that's everything from like low level worry through anxiety all the way up to terror. And another primary process emotion is rage, which is everything from mild irritation through anger, frustration into rage itself. Emily Nagoski says that if you're in a fear, anxiety or a rage space, it's really difficult to get to a play or a lust space in your brain. And in order to get to your sexy space, you need to be able to recognise where your brain is at and how to move it to a different space. So I have been thinking about this in terms of an emotional floor plan. So this couple who were... One partner really wanted his partner to just be in lust kind of all the time. Like, maybe I want her to find it very easy to get to the lust space in her brain. Mm. And the way he was going about communicating that was just making her more and more anxious and stressed and self-critical. So we drew maps of, like, what spaces, what emotional spaces are in the vicinity of the lust space. For a lot of people, play is in the vicinity of the lust space. Like, it's if the lust is one of the rooms on your floor plan, maybe the playroom is right next to it and there's a doorway that goes right in. Uh, the play space is one of the reasons why vacation sex is so much of a phenomenon. So learning to recognize which space you are in and what helps you to transition out of the difficult spaces and gradually into the more positive spaces is how, when you're stuck in your brain, like I was just stuck in this physical exhaustion and stress and worry. And when I realized I was like stuck in that space and I needed to learn how to get out and find my way into a different space, all the puzzle pieces clicked together. In particular, what I learned was I shouldn't try to get to the lust space directly. I shouldn't try to get out of anxiety and into lust. No, I should try to aim for a room next door 
So how did the couple with the baby get on? Yeah, I know for sure that they have a happy ending because they came and found me at the end of the weekend to be like, we just want to let you know that we had sex this morning and it was really beautiful and we're very grateful. I don't know how long that lasted, but like they heard it and they got through. It was another example of him being in a position of feeling entitled to her desire Mm. and feeling like if she couldn't want him the way she had previously wanted him, one of the difficult things for them was that early in their relationship, it had been hot and heavy. She was super into it. And it was the process of pregnancy that really changed everything for her. And he was worried that like he he was never going to get that connection with her back, that by having a family with her, he had broken their erotic connection. And like, because nothing had changed in him, it was like something changed in you. Let us fix the change that happened in you. (laughs) And that's, it's never the case in a relationship that one partner is broken and the other one is whole and we just need to fix one of them. It is always the interaction between the two people that is co-creating whatever the dynamic is. So if he had, for example, been totally fine and accepting, like, yeah, of course things are going to change with your sexuality. You're pregnant and you're giving birth and you're breastfeeding. The whole meaning of your body has changed. Your whole relationship with your body has changed. Our sense of who we are as individuals and in a relationship, all that is changing. We sort of need to build our erotic connection from scratch together. That might not have built up this sort of chasing dynamic where the more he asked, the more pressured she felt and the more pressured she felt, the more she said no. And the more she said no, the more he asked and felt rejected and bad, but also wanted to push more and more. And so they got trapped in this chasing dynamic. So, Emily, how did they get out of that dynamic? The way I pointed out was to say, so uh, my suggestion is that we take sex off the table entirely. And and he says, for how long? And Like, it's been a year and a half, so I said, I'm going to say a number, and you can do whatever you want with that number, make it shorter, make it longer, I don't know. What if you took sex off the table for three months? And he heavy sighed and rolled his (laughs) eyes. And I looked at his wife and I said, "Uh, how, how does his expression make you feel? And like, out pours all of this emotion about the way she feels judged and inadequate and broken. And I was like, and do any of those feelings make it easier for you to want to have sex with him? (laughs) No, of course they don't. I mean, I love you so much. You know that I love you and I'll have sex with you if you want to have sex. But, and so we turn to him and say, what is it like for you to know that your heavy sigh and eye roll activates all that feeling inside of her? And The thing is, it had never occurred to either of them that he wasn't entitled to her desire. It hadn't occurred to either of them that she wasn't the diagnosed patient, as they call it, that it was actually the way the two of them were interacting together. That was the problem. So he learned to listen and to notice when his masculinity script was telling him that, like, no, she's supposed to change for you. She's supposed to adapt for you. And her femininity script was like, no, you're supposed to be a giver. You're supposed to sacrifice your own well-being on the altar of other people's comfort and convenience. Just go ahead and have the sex. But as they began to recognize that they were following scripts that neither of them chose and began co-creating 
a script that was right for them and their relationship, that created space for them to connect with each other erotically in ways that were freed from all of that garbage we've all been taught. Mm. What is it that you want when you want sex? The answer is not orgasm. You can have an orgasm by yourself. Mm. But what is it that you want when you want sex with a partner? If you allow yourself to dig deep with this, and what is it that you do not want when you do not want sex with this partner? And the different question, what is it that you like when you like sex with a partner? It is real difficult to start having these conversations with a partner or with anyone if you don't know the answers to questions like that. How are we supposed to be able to have conversations when we don't even have a basic understanding of our own internal experience of what is it that we want when we want sex? Could be all kinds of things. You can probably think of a million things that friends and family would say in answer to that question. They, sure, they want the pleasure. There's actually four main things that people say, and pleasure is number two. <laughs> the first one, do you want to guess what people want when they want sex? Uh, intimacy? Yeah, it's connection. Connection. A hundred percent. That's what people are looking for is uh, they want to peel their skin off in a good way. <laughs> they want to be vulnerable and close. And like none of that stuff in the outer world is standing as a barrier between them and this other person, that they're that deeply connected. Okay. So intimacy or connection. Got it. Pleasure. What are three and four? So it's shared pleasure specifically. It's not just, I want to rub my skin against somebody else's skin. It is, I want to watch my partner's face as I go down on them. I want to experience shared pleasure. I want them to be part of my pleasure. Number three is about being wanted, which that's like the guy at the weekend workshop. Like, I just really want to be wanted. Lots of people. I want to feel like my partner loves and appreciates every aspect of me, even my flaws. I want to feel accepted. I want to feel desirable. And then the fourth variable is, it was a surprise to me. I'm calling it freedom. It's feeling fully immersed in an erotic experience. It is that like, I want to clear my head and stop thinking. I want to step into a magic circle where everything else in the world falls away. I want to abandon control and be completely present in the moment. I just, all I want is to be here and experiencing these sensations with this person without having to worry about anything else. I did want to talk, because I know we've been very heteronormative today, but I did want to talk about women taking on the mental load in families, in heterosexual relationships, when they're just busy in their brains nonstop. And this magical circle that you talk about is almost impossible to enter when you've just got all this stuff whirring around in your brain. So how do you get into that circle? Women, part of our script is that we are... The givers, we take care of other people. And when we feel like we have to do all of the caretaking of everyone around us, we're trapped in this corner of, I think of it as like the kitchen in my emotional floor plan, where it's just this <laughs> constant rotation of cooking and dishes and cooking and dishes and cooking and dishes because people need to get fed mm -hmm. and dishes need to be cleaned so that there's a set of dishes for the next <laughs> meal and you're just trapped there. 
When people are in that space, it is really difficult to transition out of it into anything anywhere near lust. There's another great sex therapist and researcher named Nan Wise who wrote a book called Why Good Sex Matters. And she talks about these primary process emotions and a conversation she had with a client. She said, your care system is cock blocking your lust system. Because <laughs> she was just like so stuck in caregiver mode. And what she needed was help. She did not need a mindfulness practice to help her transition her mind. I mean, like, mindfulness is really good for you. It's very good. (laughs) And also, what she actually needed was help so that the amount of work that was on her plate was lessened because it was an utterly bananas, unrealistic level of stuff she felt responsible for that her partner wasn't even aware of. Dr. Nagoski says that traditional gender roles have a part to play in our general lack of horniness in long-term relationships. One of the things I looked at was uh, what are the most common reasons men hate their wives and wives hate their husbands? And I found a weird pattern. Men tend to be angry and frustrated because they are doing masculinity the way they were taught To do masculinity, they are like maybe earning the paycheck, they are being strong and stoic, they are getting the erections, and they are totally confused about why their partners are criticizing them for doing masculinity right. And they feel judgmental of their partners for doing femininity wrong, for not being patient enough, not being caring and supportive and loving enough, for being too critical, for being too angry. And then women, on the other hand, are angry at men for not being better partners, which is not compatible at all with being masculine, because the rules of masculinity are winning, horny, and angry, and that's it. There is no intimacy there. There is no loving. There is no affectionate. There is no compassion or consideration. There's just winning, angry, and horny. And so men are upset that women are not being giving enough and women are upset that men are not being giving enough. Everyone is upset that everyone else is not being giving enough. So if I had one universal piece of advice for how to improve an erotic connection that you would like to last a long time, both people give, but especially the guys. And it goes against everything he has been taught from the day he was. There are exceptions. I am married to a cis white dude who happens to have been raised in a way where he is even more of a giver than I am. I know that this thing I am saying does not apply to every guy, Mm. 100%. But for the guys whose wives are like, listen to this, it might be (laughs) that what she's looking for is kindness. And I looked up kindness in the dictionary. Kindness is not just being nice. It is being nice, but it is being considerate, which is to say, anticipating what the other person's needs might be and meeting them, being considerate and being generous. When I say be considerate and generous, I am not talking about in bed. 
almost none of the sex advice that's going to make a great difference in your erotic lives happens during the sex. It happens in the rest of your lives as you're co-creating a larger context that makes it easier to access and to get into the lust space. Mm. What can I do to help my partner feel released from that care space, from the fear space, from panic, grief, from rage? How can I help them to be released from there so that they are free to transition into these more positive spaces? How can we start having the conversation about the sex we want to have when we potentially haven't had good sex with our partner in years? Yeah. Uh, so if it's been years and you haven't had sex, I'm going to suggest that the conversation should be about, are you interested in creating change around this? And would you be willing to talk with a therapist about it? Uh, because over the years, that erotic connection has gotten kludged up with a whole bunch of difficult feelings about the sex. There's really two things happening in a situation like that. There's the situation itself. And then there's all the feelings that everyone has had over the years about the situation. And they both need to be processed and solved. And they are not the same process. And often people try to like fix the situation itself by making a plan about let's try having sex on Friday night. And they do not address all the feelings. And so you bring all those feelings into your efforts and it's kludged up. It's like the plumbing is it's not going to happen. The best sex is very simple. It's when everyone is glad to be there, free to leave with no unwanted consequences, no one is experiencing unwanted pain, and whatever's happening right now in the moment, everybody can turn toward that with curiosity and even a sense of play. So that means if somebody wants an erection and an erection isn't happening, you turn toward what's happening with curiosity and a sense of play. If a partner wants an orgasm and an orgasm isn't happening, you turn toward that with curiosity and a sense of play. That truly is the best sex. You want to get to the place where you're like each other's bodies sweating and clutched around each other and fireworks orgasm? The way you get there is whatever's going on right now is part of the game. And what a glorious game, too. That was Dr. Emily Nagoski, sex educator, author of Come As You Are, Burnout and Come Together. And she was previously a guest on one of our episodes called The Clitoris 101, which you can find in our Ladies We Need to Talk feed. And listen, this could be the episode that you share with somebody who really needs to hear it because we're never going to ask you to sign up to a subscription or to donate to a Patreon, but there is a way that you can help support us and it's totally free. If you have a mate that you want to share this with, give us an endorsement because that is the best way. Word of mouth is the best way to share a podcast. This podcast was produced on the lands of the Gundungurra and Gadigal peoples. Ladies We Need to Talk is mixed by Anne-Marie de Betancourt, produced by Hannah Achelis. Supervising producer is Alex. Alex Lollback and our executive producer is Kyla Slavin. This series was created by Claudine Ryan. Lewis Hobbit, wasn't that a great episode of Ladies We Need to Talk? Oh, it sure was. Michael Hing, my co-host of the new ABC Listen podcast, Silver Bullet. Unfortunately, listening to all that constructive, funny and downright entertaining discussion of life stuff was a crushing reminder of how badly we, that is you and I, need to get our shit together. Yeah, luckily, that's exactly what we do on our podcast, Silver Bullet. 
Each week we have an incredible guest on and that person tells us what makes their life better. Then, Hingers, you and I try it and we hope it works for us. Whether it's Bikram Yoga with Grace Tame or jaw massages with Abby Chatfield. Frankly, not every idea is a good one. But statistically, if we keep trying, one of them will work. That's Silver Bullet with Hobber and Hing. Follow us on ABC Listen.